just want to say, like, that's a lot of pressure to say something that kids are going to like. So, um, <clears throat> especially with the story this morning. Whew. Um, okay, so we are obviously in uh, uh, Esther. We're finishing up this short book, just a two-week series. And in case you weren't here last week, no worries. I'm going to quickly kind of summarize what happened in um, kind of the first few chapters. So we are introduced. Um, to, there is this king. And uh, his name is so hard to say, y'all. It's uh, Hashu. I'm just gonna just uh, not say it. So um, in some translations, it says it's uh, Xerxes. So we're gonna say that. So he's having this huge banquet, 180 days. He's celebrating how big he is, um, how much riches he has. He calls his queen out, uh, Vashti, to come. She refuses to come. That does not go over well. So then they need a new queen. And then uh, in the capital of Susa, all the, all the females come and they essentially audition to be the queen. It's essentially a beauty contest. And there is this woman named Esther who, who went. She um, went over the king. Other uh, officials uh, seem to admire her. So she gets to be the queen. She also has this um, cousin, Mordecai, um, a Jew, which means Esther is also Jewish, um, that essentially raised her. And so they have a really close relationship. He probably has some sort of um, high rank because um, he's always near um, the king's gate and kind of in that vicinity of, of the palace and whatnot. And then there's this guy named Haman who uh, is elevated to this very, very high position, kind of the king's right-hand man. And there's this law, this rule that everyone has to bow to Haman. Haman's got a little bit of an ego, just a little bit. And Mordecai, for whatever reasons, refuses to bow to him. So this infuriates Haman. So then Haman decides, you know what a good solution to this issue is? Is I think that all Jews should die. Seems reasonable, right? Um, he may need some anger management classes. So Haman ends up essentially kind of bribing the king, saying he's going to give these riches. I want you to send this decree. Um, Haman throws lots, which is kind of this like bet and decides, okay, 11 months from this day, we're going to destroy all the Jews. Clearly, Mordecai is very upset. He gets news to Esther. Esther, you've got to do something. You've got to stand up. You've got this power. You've got this position. You've got to do something. And she, some people may read that she kind of goes back and forth, kind of waffles. It seems a little bit coward, but she really rises to the occasion and says, okay, so so much so that she says, you know, if I, if I die, then I die, but I'm going to fight for my, for my people. So that's kind of what happens in the first handful of chap, um, chapters. So now we find ourselves in chapter six. One thing that you need to, that I didn't say is Mordecai earlier uh, overhears a plan to, to assassinate the king, and he tells Esther, and then obviously those people that were going to do it, are done away with. But they kind of earned some favor with Esther, and that's where we're picking up in chapter 6. Okay, so on that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of records, the onwals, and they were read to the king. It was found in Rent how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and uh, Tirish, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had conspired to assassinate the king Xerxes. I'm saying that. Then the king said, what honor of distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman, 
had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Oh yeah, Haman prepared something so he could kill Mordecai. He didn't want to wait until 11 months from that day. He's like down with Mordecai. So the king's servants told him, Haman is there standing in the court. The king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what shall be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? So Haman is convinced, poor guy, this is all for him. So he's thinking, okay, king, great. I can't wait to see what I, I get done. So then, for the man whom the king wishes to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse that the king has ridden with a royal crown on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let him robe the man whom the king wishes to honor, and let him conduct the man on horseback through the open square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor. So Haman's like, I can't, I get to wear the king's robes. Someone gets to parade me around. People are going to like look at me and cheer for me. Then the king said to Haman, quickly take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to the Jew Mordecai who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and robed Mordecai and led him riding through the open square of the city, proclaiming, this shall be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor. So can you imagine Haman, he who thinks he's so great, is having to parade this man that he absolutely despises. Like Mordecai is getting all this honor. So then the return, uh, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered, when Haman told his wife Zeresh all his friends, everything that had happened to him, his advisors and his wife said to him, if Mordecai, before whom your downfall has begun, is of the Jewish people, you will not prevail against him, but you will surely fall before him. Thanks for the support, team. Thanks. That's really nice. Could use a pep talk right now. And basically they're like, yeah, good luck. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman off to the banquet that Esther had prepared. So Esther has this plan. She's going to have this banquet just for the king and for Haman. And this is where she's going to devise her plan. She's going to speak to both of them. Now remember, Esther doesn't really have power. She's a woman. Um, she's a Jew, although the king doesn't know that. She really doesn't have any sort of voice or power. But she's like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to figure out a way to save my people. So now we're in chapter 7. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. On the second day, as they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have won your favor, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me. That is my petition. In the lives of my people, that is my request. So this is her kind of revealing that she's, that she's Jewish. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have held my peace. But no enemy can compensate for the damage to the king. Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has presumed to do this? The king is really not uh, aware of things that go on, clearly. It's, it's great. And then, uh, then King Xerxes, okay, who is he? Esther said, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king rose from the feast in wrath and went into the palace garden. 
Then Haman stayed to beg his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that the king had determined to destroy him. When the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman had thrown himself on the couch where Esther was reclining, and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the words left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs in the tenants uh, on the king, said, Look, the very gals that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, stands at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king, then the anger of the king abated. Whew, it's rough. And then we in chapter eight. On that day, King Xerxes gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. Then the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. So Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. This is the word of God for the people of God. So that's a lot of information. There's a lot going on. And you think, okay, great. Chapter 8, Esther gets to save all the Jews. Mordecai is elevated, happy ever after, right? But if you were to go home and read, you're going to say, Reagan, there's actually two more chapters of this book. Were you going to cover what happened in those and I'm going to kind of because I think it's important so what happens after this is is not great it's very as people would say very old testament so the thing is the indict the the rule that the king sent out to kill all the Jews he actually can't take that back for whatever reason the Persian laws but he can write something to kind of counteract it so essentially he says, okay, I'll send, someone, I'll send one out and the Jews can defend themselves and they can do whatever they want to protect themselves. So there ends up being a lot of killing, a lot of bloodshed. And then Esther asked the king, actually, actually, could we have, the, the king says, you can have one day. And then Esther says, actually, could we have one more day? Could we have one more day of that? And then there's this festival because of that. They're, they're victorious. There's this festival inaugurated, the Feast of Purim, which means, Purim means lots because that's what Haman threw. And so it's this, this big festival to celebrate the downfall of Haman and the killing of their enemies. It's this very loud celebration. They also, um, part of it is they read Esther. Um, their tradition is read Esther to give food to someone, get a gift for a friend. But it's this really big festival, which I had never heard of. Maybe you have heard of it. People dress up, there's parades, there's feasting, there's celebration. There's actually, I have a few photos from the parade. So like, it is huge. It's one of the biggest things. It reminds me very much of kind of like Mardi Gras, right? Like it's this huge, huge festival. But I think about this, I'm like, okay, so this is celebrating the end of Esther is not, is not great. And I think, what do we do with this? What do we do with this kind of information? I mentioned last week that this book, uh, God is not mentioned. There's no prayers. And so it could probably be very tempting to say, you know, I don't know if this book has anything to teach me. In fact, I should probably just not even read it. Let's toss it to the side. And when it's tempting to not read stories or scriptures or even verses or entire books of the Bible, I'm going to encourage you not to do that because I do believe that God has something to say, even through these most difficult passages. 
Because as someone who believes in the way that the Holy Spirit continues to speak and work through Scripture, it has something to say to us. It can bring forth lessons, it reveals things, and yes, it can challenge us in the year 2023. And so as tempting as it is to not wrestle with difficult passages, I encourage you to do that because it's really important for our spiritual growth and the ways in which we witness in the world. Because if you haven't noticed, there's some pretty bad theology out there. So if you can know how to navigate and, and speak about these difficult things, I think it will help us better witness to who, who God is. And if Esther was important enough to be in the canon, clearly there's something that we should pay attention to. Many of you probably grew up United Methodist. Maybe you, you haven't, but I love the way that we view Scripture. We have such a high view of Scripture, but we also know that the ways in which we read it and we experience God and learn, we have to take into account um, you know, our experience, our reason, tradition. United Methodists, are, we're encouraged to kind of push back, to think critically, ask questions, dig deep. And so when you read something that disturbs you, Maybe these are a few questions that can help guide you. These are things that I think about. And I think I have them up. What are you trying to say to me? Saying like, God, like, what are you trying to say to me in this passage? What is beneath the surface? Like maybe what is not being said, but what is, what is coming forth? What else is happening in the story? And then what was going on around this time? You have to think and account historically what was going on. So this is me saying it's okay to, question, to have questions when reading the Bible and not just accept things blindly because there are some scriptures and stories that I can't just say, well, that makes sense. That adds up. So wrestle with scripture. That's how we grow in our discipleship. So therefore, Esther is a hard book for me. It's one of those hard books. Now, why I love that it's this strong female who has risen, who has outsmarted everyone. Gosh, I love that part of the story. I'm like, yes, a woman is leading. She wins. She just outwits everyone. It's incredible. But the ways in which she kind of goes about it are hard for me. It's hard for me. There's so much violence. There seems to be some morally gray areas for me. And so I'm torn between celebrating the rise of Esther and then how everything unfolds. So how do we celebrate the story when we're conflicted? What do we do? So I came across this article in, in my research and looking at commentaries, I'm like, okay, I need someone to like speak about Esther and Mordecai that maybe they're not these great heroes. And I found this article by Professor Amy Merrill Willis, who's uh, is Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Lynchburg College. And this is a long quote, but I think it's important, so I'm gonna read it for you. While it has no problem, meaning the book of Esther, has no problem depicting the Persian king as bumbling and stupid, and his right-hand man, Haman, as calculating and evil, the book offers no judgment on Mordecai's actions or Esther's. Instead, the story invites the reader into the messy, compromising world which these characters must negotiate. Mordecai advocates discretion in one instance and then practices defiance in another. Esther's ambitions to be queen compromise traditional Jewish injunctions regarding sexual and dietary purity, and yet she displays a moral courage worthy of her Jewish identity. And both characters work to save others, even as they actively promote a violent bloodbath that overshadows the festivities of the end of the book. The reader is invited to consider the actions of both Mordecai and Esther as both morally questionable and as heroic and salvific, less than ideal, but worthy of annual remembrance in the Feast of Purim. The book of Esther understands well the challenges of living in a world 
where one might have to juggle and negotiate different, even conflicting identities and loyalties, one political, one ethnic, and religious. So the first thing that I really learned from reading this book is it teaches me the complexity of people. That none of us are completely good, none of us are completely bad. There is so much that makes us us, and when it comes to leadership, there's so much we may not understand or know when decisions are made, especially when they seem inconsistent or impulsive or reactionary. While what Esther asked for, another day of killing, is not necessarily a gray area for me, ultimately Mordecai and Esther both challenge, challenge me, at least, when read, is sometimes to give grace to one another. There's so many characters in the Bible that are gray, right? A lot of their things we're not all for but God uses them in ways. And for me, I realized, you know, sometimes I don't try to understand people's perspectives. I don't try to understand their reasons. I'm quick to cut them off or lash out, hold grudges, withhold forgiveness. And I think the Bible really reminds me of the way that we should try to turn towards love, first of all. The second thing I learned, which was really big, is that I realized the reason I struggle with this book is probably because... Jesus talks so much about loving our enemies or turning our cheek, the practice of forgiveness, not, doing, not engaging in violence. And so therefore, I realized, you know, I'm reading this story through a Christian lens. I'm not reading it as someone who is Jewish. There is simply a lack of understanding or appreciation for this story because I'm not Jewish. When you think about this, the Jewish people have been through so, so much. Slavery, the exodus, exile, not to mention just the constant threat and destruction at any moment. They were this marginalized group. They had very real fears and worries and at times felt very much abandoned and forgotten by God. In this book, we realize that a lot of Jews were hiding their identity because they were scared for their lives constantly. That pain, that grief, that struggle to have hope or believe in restoration was so real that you could touch it, you could see it. So this festival of Purim isn't really rejoicing at the killing of enemies. So I'm gonna disagree with what I said earlier. The pictures reveal, yes, it's this, this joyous celebration, but really it's not about celebrating the destruction of people. It's this celebration of a God's saving nature that God has not forgotten God's people, that God is always with us, that God is for people that are not powerful, that God is for those that are forgotten, those that are pushed aside, those that are on the margins. God is for the poor and the weak, the outsiders, and God will always stand with those. They will all, God will always stand with those who are oppressed. God came to save all of us. And this book also talks about God is for justice, God is for justice. What had been done against the Jewish people was wrong. What is done today, in the name of God sometimes, against people groups is wrong. God is for the oppressed and will always be present with them. And God will always uplift those that have no power. When we read about Esther, we can see, I, at least I do, I see elements of Christ who came as a poor infant, who had no earthly power, was Jewish, but both characters, both Christ and Esther, offered this renewal to the Jewish people. In the story of Esther, many Jews hid their identity because of fears. 
but through Jews claiming their identity, claiming God's grace and love and power, they are saved. For us, when we claim Christ, we claim our identity too, beloved people worth being saved. When I realized the greater truth of the book of Esther is, is about God's commitment to justice, to protecting, to saving, I can rest a little easier. And I can have the assurance that God ultimately will have the final word on everything. So may we cling to those promises and truths above all else. Amen.